Grand Rising family, this is your host, Brother Technico, coming at you with another episode in the Niso Technico show. And this episode is going to be a particularly special one um, because it's the first part of a multi-part series. And before I get into uh, the series, I did want to talk about it a little bit. So if you guys want to skip ahead to the information or to certain sections that you're interested in, check the uh, timestamps in the description and go ahead and skip ahead. But I do feel like it's necessary to kind of give some background, if you will, as in, uh, as it pertains to why am I doing this. And the reason why I'm doing this, or one of the reasons why I'm doing this, is because there's a lot of misconceptions about our enslavement, about how, how it happened, why it happened. And when you delve into the history, you start to put the pieces together, you start to understand this process because I hear it all the time people ask me well if we were so great how did we fall um, I hear a lot of questions about you know Africans that sold other Africans in, uh, into slavery and when we learn about these things or when we hear about these things we're never given it given given those things in any context it's always here's this bit of information but there's so much information omitted there's so many things that make it convoluted and it's, and it's done that way by design but the purpose that I have with this podcast is to fill in some of the gaps and to present episodes because again this our enslavement that's a, that's something that's been happening for over a thousand years transatlantic may have only been a few hundred but us being enslaved, this process started much sooner. And it's, it's partially why it was able to happen. But I feel like once we have some of the details, we can understand why it happened. Number one, so it can never happen again. And number two, so we can start feeling better about ourselves. And there's a few other things I want to talk about, too, within the series, not necessarily in this part today, but I am going to talk about uh, a lot of the crimes that were committed. I am going to talk about the rebellions and different forms of resistance. But again, uh, I feel like the best way to start this is to start from the beginning. So the first part is going to be about the Arabs' involvement, Islam's involvement in our enslavement. And when we look at some of these uh, these episodes that I've picked out for everyone, you will start to see, okay, or at least start to understand maybe a bit better about how this started and why it was so necessary to talk about uh, Arab Islamic, uh, Islamic slavery, because it's a very under-discussed topic. We don't talk about it enough, and I'm not just talking about us as a people, I'm talking about academia. When we talk about slavery, we very seldom talk about the progenitors of the international slave trade. So I am going to talk about that today. And hopefully the family is able to take something from it. So without further ado, we're going to pay some bills and we're going to jump right into it. So before we get started, there's a few key points that I want to cover um, just to help us understand 
this podcast or this material even better and even help us understand when we're going and uh, cross-referencing sources or delving into some of these sources that I mentioned uh, for yourself because there are a few novel things that exist in academia today the way that people describe things we know that history is written in the the language or in the words of the conqueror so I want to break down a couple of things to open our minds a bit so the first thing I want to talk about is the term Berber and we should understand that as much as we do use the term Berber and sometimes we use it interchangeably with uh, more depending on who you're talking to uh, Berber is not a number one a North African term and is not an Arabic term okay when you deal with primary sources describing uh, the Moors or the quote-unquote Berbers they're not referred to as Berbers they're actually referred to as Sudanese and some primary sources that you guys can look into for yourself um, Ibn, well I'll, I'll give you some authors and the work should come up uh, Ibn Hiryan he's about 950 CE uh, Ibn Hayyan he was about 980 to uh, 1075 CE and Ibn al-Athir between 1160 and 1233 CE. And when you look at their works, and their works uh, particularly describe uh, Tariq's invasion into Europe or the conquest of Europe, they describe the troops or the, uh, the soldiers, the quote-unquote Berbers that were with Tariq as Sudanese. They don't use the term Berber. They don't call them Moors. You call them Sudanese. And that's kind of leading me into the other thing. You know, we use the term more. And I have no problem with us using the term or even identifying with the term. But we should understand that none of the people who were Moors or could be considered a Moor ever referred to themselves as that. Uh, the people that were around them didn't call them more. That was a term from that others called them people who are outside the box okay a little bit more about berber it's derived from the uh the roman word uh barbary um and it also describes the uh the region that the berbers would live in so that when we th when we think of berber we have to think of a roman um, lineage so to speak in terms of the creation of the word it's not a again an Arabic word now I do have some ideas about this my uh, thoughts on this are simply during the Renaissance period where a lot of the Europeans as we all know they're getting into the knowledge they're they're studying they start to shape things and create things sort of in their image and even name things as we know the Europeans and many other cultures uh, have the tendency to do um, they tend to either give a name or butcher a name of the people or give a name to a certain people and that may, name may not be the name that those people have but that's how they refer to them as that's what we see here because again Arab uh, scholars do not call them that um, the Berbers themselves at that particular time did not identify as Berber although now because the term exists you may find some people who identify with the term at this point but at that time during that day that didn't exist 
Okay, and another another thing, and I'll get into the point of why I'm saying this. The writing systems of the so-called Berber people is Tifna. Now, there's many different ethnic groups that it comprise of what is considered to be Berbers, right, or these North Africans. However, the language itself isn't called Berber, and again, the word does not exist. And typically, when you have a language, when you have a script, because Tifna is, in, is a script, the language or the script reflects the people who created it. Okay? Arabic by the Arabs. Hebrew by the Hebrews. Okay? The Castilian Castellanos, or I, I'm, I butcher how the Spanish used to call themselves the Catalan people. And that's what the language was called before it came to uh, to the Americas and changed with the indigenous uh, indigenous languages. Now, why am I bringing this up? The reason why I'm bringing this up is because when you look into history, a lot of things get changed. A lot of things get changed around and a lot of it is meant to confuse you. It's meant to make you think that something that is like something is that isn't. Or make you believe something that's not is. So if you can believe in these different types of people, you don't ever really see the connections. And it's also a way that they can kind of generalize folks. The same way they generalize uh, black folks by calling either sub-Saharan or Bantu, blah, 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 blah. So that's the, that's the gist of it. I want us to start identifying certain language that our open enemy uses even in their books to not only discredit us but to mislead us but to trick us in other words so that's what i wanted us to know from the from the rip so let's talk about the north africans or the berbers and their treatment uh, while they were in spain I think it's important to understand kind of what their relationship was. I think the way that we understand the uh, the Moors or the Africans that went there or even the Berbers was something like they were loved and uh, treasured and cherished. And that really wasn't the case. And it starts off from the very, very, very beginning. Now, I won't start from the Prophet Muhammad, but I'm going to start with the story of Gabel Tariq and that should be a name that a lot of us do know. But if you don't know, well, you're going to find out a few things. So, Gabal Tariq, circa 709 CE. He's asked by Governor Musa, who is his boss, he's an Arab, to go survey uh, the fortress Kuwaita and just to kind of see if there's any way they can get through there. Uh, Count Julian runs that fort and has been pretty much resisting the Arabs, um, the Arab jihads very, very well. Now, there's a particular incident, and this undergoes some controversy, but I think that it's pretty clear uh, what happened, even despite those who try to clean it up. King Roderick, who's the king at the time, uh, molests uh, Count Julian's daughters, forces himself upon her, uh, disgraces him in his mind, and even historians say that he forgot himself or forgot. No, he's just a, your, your typical asshole, right? But because uh, 
basically just to even get into that and i'm sure you guys watch this kind of stuff on netflix where the um the upper class you know the nobles they go uh stay with the king and they get educated and they learn all this other kind of stuff and it's at this point where king roderick does what he does king Ju uh count julian is furious about it and he allows Tariq to pass and that was a major major thing because they weren't able to break through before so he passes he builds a fortress um gibraltar and as you guys know that the strait is named after gabel Tariq, or Tariq, the one who crosses over so he goes in there he surveys the land he finds that europe is in much worse shape than they thought and i guess they assumed that they would maybe be tough because again they were having a hard time uh, passing through this ancient fortress. So Musa, Governor Musa, wants him to wait. He's like, uh, no, we can take them now. So he starts uh, conquering. And some cities, like the doors were practically left open uh, for them. Okay. Um, you had some cities where the Jews uh, helped them overthrow the city before they got there. Uh, Europeans and Jews alike were joining his force. Uh, Tariq goes into Europe, by the way, with 7,000 uh, soldiers. Only 300 of them are Arabs, right? But by the time that he encounters Roderick, he has about um, like roughly 20,000. Some historians uh, place it higher, some lower. They're uncertain. It's very, very similar to the... Uh, the Hannibal story and they, they seem to have a hard time dealing with um, African tactics and Africans being able to defeat large forces because King Roderick has like a force of like a hundred thousand people and Europe is like and he's defeated within a year but anywho Tariq is going in he's conquering he's doing his thing Musa who doesn't want to be upstaged by his um by his young, I, I can't think of the word right now, but his youngin, we're just gonna go with youngin right now, he, uh, he goes in and he tries, uh, trying to conquer cities as well, even his son goes and tries to conquer some places, and his son ends up losing his life, but at the end of it all, Europe is conquered, and Tariq is waiting, and he's expecting to be congratulated, by Governor Musa, like, hey, you know, I know you didn't want me to do that, but, you know, I, I saw, you know, I saw opportunity, I took it, but we here now. Instead, he's beaten brutally. Uh, some history book says that he, he had him beaten. Some um, history books say that Musa, Governor Musa beat him himself, but we do know that he was beaten and afterwards he was thrown into prison. And I believe he was thrown into prison for several weeks until... Uh, or maybe a month or so until the uh, caliph in Damascus and the leaders of Damascus found out that's what happened and they forced him to be released. Now, it doesn't end there. It is said that the North Africans in Spain only served really as a buffer between uh, the Muslims and the Christians. If you were a Jew, you were in a, a great place to be. And in fact, when you deal with the Khazarians and they chose to uh, adopt Judaism over Christianity because they saw how the Christians or the Catholics, whatever, 
how those folks were being treated and what their status in life was because Arab Islam was in control for a very, very long time until World War I. Right. So anyway, there were a lot of fights that would break out. Um, things from petty squabbling to families actually taking up arms, uh, revolts. In fact, um, one of Tariq's generals, um, Minosa, who had married himself a, a southern French gal, uh, daughter of a duke of Aquitaine, which is known as Southern, basically a kingdom in Southern France, uh, had led a revolt um, circa 741 uh, against the Arabs. Another episode <clears throat> is when Emir Abdul el-Malik had to get Syrian Arabs to help him quell uh, North African or Berber revolts that were happening and he were able to get the people now mind you he did not care about these Syrian folks he did not like them he never gave them any aid and I'm sure they remember that so after all the fighting was done the people were quelled he wanted the Syrians to go claim Morocco and other lands that were in North Africa <clears throat> and keep Alan Delouche for himself they decided they would lop his head off and yeah that's pretty much how that went and they set up their own leader and this went on until the the caliph of damascus sent his own governor to kind of settle things down they banished the people who they felt would keep the fight going and just kept them separated you know so made them go you know there's your land you go over there there's your land you go over there so never really solving the problem um <clears throat> Romeo and Juliet comes to mind when you think about like warring families that are just feuding with each other. This was sort of the situation that was happening in Alan Delouche. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> another thing I would like to, to bring up, because I'm going to get more about these Arabs and their treatments, but I do want to talk about the Umayyad dynasty. When Tariq takes over, when he conquers, it is written that this is the beginning of the Umayyad dynasty. Okay, so the Umayyad, and you can tell that there's some African lineage in it because of the double M. But do not be fooled by that. Just because something has an origin, just because something has a connection, it doesn't mean that it holds the same values or the same principles. Tariq served Musa. Musa was an Arab. He was a subordinate. That was the word I was trying to think of <laughs> before. He was a subordinate to Musa. So that, mean, that meant that he answered to Arabs at the end of the day, even if it was established, even if these were black Arabs. And that is something we're going to be dealing with a little bit too. But the significance of the Umayyad dynasty is that it is the Umayyad dynasty that starts the international slave trade between the Mediterranean Sea, the Black Sea, and so on and so forth. Um, and the first records that they have documented are even before the, uh, the beginning of the ninth century, where they have documents of the Franks selling their own daughters uh, to Jews and, and Muslims. But um, <clears throat> just staying on topic, do not ramble. So anyway, the Umayyad dynasty uh, was established by Tariq 
and the first stint of it lasted until about 750 CE. And that is when Es-Safau, a.k.a. the, bo- uh, the Butcher, uh, killed all the leadership of the Umayyad dynasty, um, bringing the Abbasid dynasty into the forefront. And it get, he, they get the name Abbasid because of, the, of his ancestor, who, whose name was Abbas, and he was said to have walked with the prophet. I can't confirm any of that, but that's what it said. That's what, that's what they say. Abdul Rahman II um, was the sole surviving member of the Umayyad dynasty or the Umayyad leadership. And he had fled, uh, ran for a bit until he finally reached Africa. When he reached Africa, he was able to petition and sources were a bit unclear of how he was able to petition. But it should be known that um, it's believed that he, as well as Tariq, had Nafsa Berber stock. So they came from the Nafsa tribe or the Nafsa group of people. That was, that was their ethnic group of people. <clears throat> so he teams up with them. Uh, they go march into Al-Andalus or Andalusia, and they, uh, and very similar to how Gebel Tariq uh, came in, there were a lot of people who were actually happy to see him there, and you had um, people help him take over Seville, and I believe Cordova as well, and he had built up so much momentum that the governor of uh, Andalusia at the time, um, Governor Yusuf, Want, uh, reached out to him and said, hey, you know, we could rule this together. Why quarrel after, yeah, you were a part of killing my whole family and all this other stuff. But anyway, um, Abdul Rahman accepts. Or ostensibly does so. Because after he accepts and they allow him to pass, well, he pretty much kills uh, Governor Yusuf. Okay, and keep that in your mind because... That is something that's going to come up again. All right. Now, after that victory over Yusuf, he uh, Abdul Rahman has a has a great career. Um, he's noted as being a great ruler. And he ends the Abbasid uh, reign in Al- in Andalusia. It does not stop the the reign of the Abbasid in other places so even though you you got rid of him here it doesn't mean that they don't exist somewhere else he just took uh, uh, Andalusia back he didn't kill all of the leadership of the uh, the Abbasid the way that they did but he re- he reestablishes the Umayyad dynasty they go through a consolidation period and you start to see the international slave trade now the next part I want to get to is these Abbasids, because these Abbasids are very, very wicked and vile people. Or they were wicked and vile people. And they are responsible for what is considered um, some of the most brutal uh, treatment of, uh, of slaves, and they particularly got uh, East African slaves. And they were a part of what's called the Zanj Rebellion, which took place between 869 and 888 uh, current era and it's also noted to be one of the greatest slave revolts in history Um, I I talk about it all the time that we as black people as African people we have some of the greatest revolutionary revolutionary history known to man when we revolt 
we do it like no other. Okay. But um, to give you some some tidbits about this, well, and I'll get into some other things in a bit. Um, the the rebellion was more or less successful. It was uh, donned by someone who had some, uh, or led by uh, someone who had some military experience. Uh, they fought se- uh, several successful battles, and the Abbasids go and they offer a peace meeting. They say, "Hey, you know what? We've been whooping our asses. Let's let's talk about this. Let's let's be peaceful." So they go uh, they go and meet, and that's when the entire leadership was slaughtered. It was a trap, uh, very very similar to the the trap that um, that you uh, that was set up for uh, Yusuf by Abdul Rahman. So obviously they didn't forget uh, some of these tricks of battle. Now to get into Zanj itself and kind of the parts that I really wanted to get into is um, Zanj. What does Zanj mean? Well, Zanj roughly means black. And there is a bit of debate over this word, a lot of controversy over this word um, because it's attached to some pretty negative things sometimes not so much when you talk about um authors such as al jahiz uh the one who wrote about the black supremacy over the white folks he has a very very different idea of what sanj is but uh zanj again it means black uh it's also the the root word in um in zanzibar land of blacks um Zanj can also be considered the actual place at times it was used to refer to the uh, to the area, either the land of the blacks or the land of the Negroes. How has it become the land of the Negroes? Because Zanji is the equivalent, the Arabic equivalent to nigger. Okay, and hopefully this damn, I don't lose any monetization for saying that, but it is what it is. It's the truth. Now, to get into some people who spoke, I want to talk about what Al Mukadasi had to say about uh, Zanj people. Um, and I quote, as for Zanj, they are people of black color, flat, nose, flat noses and kinky hair and little understanding or intelligence. He goes on to say in another quote, we know that the Zanj are the least intelligent and the least discerning of man or least discerning of mankind and the least capable of understanding or intelligence and it doesn't stop there and i'm just going to give you guys like a few like i said well just another one of these or a few of these but i I can't get into everything that these era writers say there's the, one of the reasons behind the controversy behind the word Zanj and other terms that they use is because they're attached to some negative and what we would consider today racist uh, ideologies or beliefs. Now, again, these people are having these beliefs long before Europe ever rises out of their dark ages. It takes them until about a thousand or eleven hundred uh, CE before they really start kind of getting their stuff together. So this is this is beyond all of that, or before all of that. Um, Arab historians uh, also talked about Abdul Rahman, saying that he, you know, was blind in one eye, he had a bad sense of smell. You know, I'm no, 
I don't know if I necessarily get the, the meaning of that. Evidently, smell used to have some sort of uh, deeper meaning uh, back in the day. Uh, Ibn Khaldun said that the only people to accept slavery are the Negroes um, because of their uh, le uh, lower degree of humanity, um, their place being closer to that uh, to the animal stage. This is Ibn Khaldun. Now, I did mention Ibn Hakal or uh, Ibn al-Hathir and even Ibn Khaldun. It's important to understand that these people had African blood in them. Even al-Hathir, it seems that uh, based on his name, he appears to be a Moor. Now, how did these people have these thoughts towards the color black? Uh, the way that they do, and if some of these people are black or some of the people in their families are black. That has a lot to do with Arab ideals, Arab ideology. And even though there was a bias towards skin, and we can go back even to the Romans and Greeks who had called us Ethiopes and different things like that, you can see in history where there's been biases based on people's appearance, although this concept of race did not exist. So I think to, to make it make some sense is how a lot of Hebrew Israelite uh, converts uh, that we have in our um, communities today have the belief, and not all, but a lot of them have the belief that they're Hebrew and not black. They're Hebrew and not African. Although some people may debate that because where the hell is Israel supposed to be located? Middle East, Middle East of what? But that's the thing. You have people who can easily disconnect or detach themselves from black. You have people within our own cultures now who are African-American. How, how often have we heard this? I, I'm uh, African-American, I'm not black, or I'm black, I'm not African-American. Just the separation. Looking at somebody, we can tell who you are, what you are. And to some of us, when people do that, it's confusing. Like, how can you say something like that? How can you say that I'm not black or I'm not attached to this? Well, you have a belief in an ideology that allows you not to be that. Especially when you start to contribute the the tone of your skin to other qualities and if you attach the tone of your skin to a t intelligence if you're an intelligent black arab you don't feel like it applies to you even if you deal with some of the the bias in in the back of your mind it's that shit, i can't be a black how can i be a black when i'm intelligent i have this i have that i blah 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 blah, blah. this is a very very important thing and as I continue and even talk about some of these people, even throughout the rest of this series, I want all of us to kind of keep that within the frame of our minds, is that during this period, there was no concept of African. There was no concept truly of black and white the way that we know it today. Your ethnic group meant everything. If you were Hebrew, you were a Hebrew. If you were Nafsa, you were Nafsa. Sanhaja, Sanhaja. Dinka, whatever you were, that's who you were. You didn't subscribe to these, these conceptions. And for those black Arabs or those Arabized Africans, 
growing up in a system where this is a part of your education. Many of the people that I've described from Ibn Khaldun, Ibn Haqqal, Al-Muqadasi, these are scholars. They wrote books. They were highly respected individuals. These are your modern day um, Sigmund Freud or uh, what's the other dude who wrote the, uh, the Natural Varieties of Mankind? What was his name? Blumenbach. These were those folks before those folks even existed. And I want to make this point now. When we talk about racist literature that I'm sure that we've come across or will come across as we delve into this research, it's important to understand that the European is not the author of it. When you talk about degrading a people through the academics to lowering people to such a level that you can do anything to them, That is not a process or that's not something that is unique or that was even started by the European, particularly as it pertains to us. And we also have to consider that these people's works, their writings, were the same works that these Europeans were studying as they were getting their education in the, uh, in the Salamancas and the Cordovas, so on and so forth. That was the education that they were receiving. So one could surmise of one that was educated, if a European had the opportunity to be educated, what would their perception of black people be? You see, much of what the European did to us was perpetuated by the Arab first. In many ways... And in some cases, if we consider the Portuguese, they learned either directly, but mostly indirectly, from their Turkish Arabic counterparts. So I'm going to talk about, um, well, I won't get into that right this second. But. So now that I've talked a little bit about the history, I want to talk about a little bit of what they contributed, and I'm still going to give a little bit of a little bit of history to kind of contextualize what I mean uh, before I go ahead and summarize everything um, or just say what I need to say, my interpretation of some of these facts. Um, the thing that we needed to consider or just understand is that when we talk about Arab Islamic slavery, it was different from a lot of other people's version of slavery. Okay, a lot of cultures had slavery and servitude, and, and I'm not to say that Islam didn't have laws regarding their slaves. They certainly did. Um, but the treatment of their slaves and what they were allowed to do, because number one, to be a slave, and I'm not saying this was always the case, as with the Fatimids and certain episodes, I hope you guys look into some of the things I talked about more deeply, because you'll find this. Um, there's definitely episodes of Arabs enslaving black or African Muslims and that goes against the Quran the other thing and I already talked about it a little bit when I brought up the Abbasids is that they were very very cruel not only did they rape and oftentimes beat but they castrated the males they took the women and turned them into concubines or sex slaves that was the thing that they 
they were really into. I'm not going to get too graphic about that here. But the other thing we need to understand about the Arab Islamic slave trade is that it ha it lasted for over 1300 years. Okay. On paper, it's generally accepted that it that it ended in the 1960s. However, in countries like Mauritania, it wasn't outlawed until 2007. Uh, for those of us who've been on social media, and I'm sure you guys know of this, you know about the live auctions that were held in Libya following uh, Muammar Gaddafi's death. Okay, so this kind of lets you know that the slavery is still alive and well, just much like in the states where they may have quote unquote abolished slavery, but then they had black codes and they had uh, work leasing and uh, quote unquote sharecropping which was still pretty much slavery. You know, only white people were truly sharecroppers. But, and even then, I there's still some um, evidence of slaves that were still being enslaved into the 60s and 70s and 80s. Like, just because it's on a piece of paper doesn't make it official. I know we, we, we're inclined to believe that because that's what the society does. The society has a thing to once you have it on documented, then it's law, it's paper, but there's things that are de facto law. Racism in this country, white supremacy in America is de facto law. It's not written down on any piece of paper that we can see. Maybe it is somewhere, but it's not for our view, but most of the people who operate and work under white supremacy, they don't need a paper to tell them what to do. It's de facto. It's, it doesn't need to be said. But I'll leave that there because I don't want to ramble and go on too long. But the most important thing that we need to identify that the Arabs did that was detrimental. Remember, I'm doing this between our lenses, so I'm not getting into the, the Black Sea, Red Sea, even though we were involved in that, too. I want to talk about what they did to Africa. Arabs preyed upon the African kingdoms and systemically broke them down. Even as early as the 9th century, 10th century, and 11th century. To give you a good example of this, 1050 CE, Abdullah ibn Yasin became the leader of the religious faction that we know to be the Amoravids. Uh, Ibn Yasin had defeated uh, Morocco and Al-Andalusia. For those who know the story of the Moors, the Almoravids, the Almohades, you kind of are familiar with this, this period. What we don't talk about, however, is shortly after Ibn Yasin's conquest of Andalusia, they go down, uh, he has his sights set on to Ghana. Now, Ghana at this particular time, the Ghana is an empire, and we should know a bit about the Gold Coast and everything like that. Uh, it's an empire comprised of many different kingdoms. Ibn Yasin's issue with Ghana is that many of the kings did not convert to Islam. So he uses that as a pretext to attack them. So he attacks, uh, he captures Tarkur, he captures Aldegast, which let me add, these are places that are very, very close to the gold routes. There's a lot of business being done here. As a matter of fact, for those who've seen it in the colors, it was brought up that there was a check found 
in Aldegast for something written for about 900 dinars or something like that. And this was in the ninth century. But it should also, but we should also understand that Aldegast was one of the cities that the uh, the Muslims had that they used uh, to do trading with the other people, to do trading with the African people. Um, Ghana at this time is control of the gold, they're in control of the salt mines and the other resources there. So for the for the Arabs and even the uh, the North African uh, Muslims, for them to get a hold of this gold, the wealth, you can't go to war without money. They had to do business with these with these people. Even Yasin is like, I don't want to deal with that. I don't even have to respect that. And it should be noted that these people, these Amaravas, the Amahades, these are some religious zealots. We can deify them, we can honor them, we can acknowledge what they did, and wherever may have you. What cannot be ignored is that these people were more Allah than Allah. But anywho, they take over, and what deals Ghana the most crippling blow is that another kingdom within the empire that, uh, who were known as the Susu, um, they branch off, they defect, they say, no, 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 we're going to do our own thing, and they start calling themselves the Kante. And the force is large enough to, uh, to where Ghana can't uh, sustain itself. So subsequently, Ghana is defeated. And the thing that I want us to take uh, from this the most, outside of the fact that there's more to these politics than just religion, there's always some money, but the thing I want you to take from this the most is that it is an African, an Arabized African. Let's be, let me be more specific. It is an Arabized African who goes into Africa, who defeats and gives Ghana its deciding blow. That's what I want us to take from that, from that episode. Because when you talk about, well, if we were doing this and we were doing that and we had all of this, how was it that the European was able to come down and do what they did? It's because we were already crippled by the time that they got here or got, got there. Hmm. That's the reality. By the time the European got there, we were already decimated by what Arab Islam had done to us. That is the fact. Now, following Ghana's demise, the Mali Empire rises. And for those who are, who are unfamiliar with the story of Abubakari, uh, the king of Mali, he's the one who traveled to the Americas, but it, during his time, they had agreements with Islam, and they were informal Muslims. He really couldn't be bothered with being a Muslim. He didn't really care for it. He cared for his own traditions, but for, po for politics, he would show up to events and do what he needed to do, but he could care less about it. Um, but based on the agreements that they had, excuse me, excuse me, uh, based on the agreements that they had, his brother, Ababakari's brother, was being educated to be a Muslim. So after he goes on off into his trip and he's gone for some time, well, 
Mali needs a leader, his brother takes over. His brother is the father of Kankan Mansa Musa, which means Mansa Musa is Abubakari's nephew. So by the time Mansa Musa is born, he's been raised and educated as a Muslim man. He's not educated in his traditional African beliefs. He even has a griot who is a eunuch. And before I get into this thing about eunuchs, but we have to understand that before this point, there were no eunuchs in Africa. Africans did not use eunuchs as advisors or anything like that. The thought of your advisor not being able to have a family or to have children was ridiculous to say the least, and, and went against a lot of their um, basic principles. But the use of eunuchs is, was very well used, or widely used in, in Arab Islam, and it's widely, it was widely used in Asia. Not every Asian nation uh, dealt with it, but they've been dealing with eunuchs for quite some time. China has a very long and rich history as it pertains to the eunuchs. They've had several eunuch eras. Um, the Sumerians uh, used uh, eunuchs. Uh, the Persians, like Xerxes, uh, used eunuchs. And even during the Archimede uh, period in Kemet, he brought eunuchs to be his advisors. Thus, you know, it's said that Kemet had uh, eunuchs, even though this wasn't a indigenous rulership at this particular time but that's just what it is that's just what it is now the reason for eunuchs is well it varied but the main thing was was that they were going to serve they were slaves serfs, serfs that could not impregnate their daughters wives basically not seen as a threat and that was the the main thing the main uh, draw with them as it pertained to these uh, advisors and they felt like because these advisors were eunuchs and also slaves they could never contest them so they were able to hold a high position such as advisor or some cases general it depends but status and before we can understand white supremacy in America we have to understand status that is what it was all about when they were talking about, like Al Mukadasi uh, talking about uh, Zanj, it's the status of being a black. It's the status of being that. Okay. But my point is, is that we see even in the story, and we talk a lot about how wealthy Mansa Musa was. We don't talk enough about. Or maybe, you know, but we don't talk enough about some of the other things he was involved in. Like, he was a super devout Muslim. The whole fact that his hajj was so grandiose was just a, was just more evidence about how devout and how into Islam he was. Even though it could be argued that after his trip into Mecca, outsiders became keenly aware of how resource rich Africa was a lot of folks didn't know that it was like a almost like a secret like when you think about Ibn Yasin for example because he was a North African he knew of the the wealth that the continent had 
But those outside of it, even if they were Arabs, that didn't mean that you were privy uh, to that information. And the other thing uh, I have to point out is that there was no internet. Okay. People had to read. If you wanted to learn about a place, you either had to travel to the place, which meant that you needed to have a sponsor or some money, or you read about them. And there weren't a lot of works out there available about it. People like that, that wasn't a very, very well known uh, fact. Okay, but after Mansa Musa goes there, the whole world becomes aware. But let me stop rambling. That's what I have bullet points for. The thing, the other thing about Mansa Musa is that because he was a Muslim, he believed after he went to war with people, he took slaves. And much like a lot of uh, Western Asians or Asians in general, uh, after he defeated people, he would take the sons with him, you know, to keep them compliant. You know, he did other good things. He commissioned uh, Timbuktu, a great college in West Africa. But um, the best way I can explain or kind of talk about this is that he's, he reminds me a lot of Madame Tinubu just without the... The, uh, the the switch being flipped. He was born into a to a situation where he was a Muslim and lived life as more or less an Arab man. Although some of the customs of Mali may have been different than what you may have found in Baghdad, his ideologies, his beliefs were very very Arab. I compared him to Madame Tinubu, although Madame Tinubu had a flip a switch that flipped. She figured things out. She was born into a Muslim system. She was a Muslim. She was born into the slave trade and slavery. But at some point, she fought, she fights to abolish it, to get rid of it. And that's a you know that's sort of like a thing. It's like Josiah P. Henson. You know he didn't know that he was a quote unquote Uncle Tom. He just knew what he knew. He didn't know about what freedom was like. And it's some, it's, uh, there's certain things that I'm just saying that we kind of take for granted. Our views, like us being in the United States, as African as we are, and we are African, we have American culture. We have American views. We have American views towards odor. We have American views towards food. There's certain foods that we think is outlandish. And some of the things that we eat, other groups might find outlandish or weird. We have no problem eating beef. There's, there's certain countries that that's a crime. But again, that's perspective. It's, the, it's what you get when you've grown up and gone accustomed to a society. That's what Mansa Musa was. That's even what Ibn Yasin was. John Henry Clark uh, has this uh, this quote that talks about black folks and how we like to out-pope the Pope and out-Muhammad Muhammad. It's exactly what these people were doing. And I guess I am kind of getting into my conclusion or my summary. There's one last uh, bullet point, though, that I, need to, that I need to cover before I get into that. And it's just notable... 
how should I put this, Islamized African slave raiders. These are Muslims, basically. And in my research, it's overwhelmingly, when you want to talk about slave trading, slave raiding, you want to talk about people who've put in the most work, who've done the most damage in terms of that group, it has to be those that were Islamized. And I'll give you a names of a couple of these groups. Some of these groups you may know. The Kanem and Bornu. And these are two different kingdoms, but they're believed to be of mostly the same ethnic group. Uh, the Bagirmi, the Adamawa, and the Fulani. At one point about the, uh, the Bornu, they had a... I have one particular leader who was uh, notorious for destroying a um, a city called uh, Damasak. Now, Damasak isn't believed to be the original city or the foundational city, but he said that it needed to uh, to fall um, so everything else could fall. At this point. Slave raiding is a thing. People have already... Uh, slave raiding has already changed the landscape of the continent. There's certain foods and certain things that, that were grown that were no longer being grown and still aren't being grown to this day. People had to change up their whole environment, their whole ecosystem in order to evade and protect themselves against slave raiders, even if it meant dwelling in caves or mountains. And that oftentimes was what they used but in this particular place you know people were able to establish themselves communities were being built so in spite of everything that had been going on since the ninth century and even before because when we consider the jihads and how they uh traversed we know that they defeated the persians and the sassanids in asia but they also swept across africa as well when we talk about Queen Kahina, she is uh, someone who would be considered a Berber uh, by that definition, and she fought against them. There's a lot of groups that did that. So the idea of Islam attacking blacks or attacking other Africans, let me not say that, but other Africans who were non-Muslim, it's not unusual, but the, the Africans on the continent had adjusted. Those who could fight, uh, fight fought. And those who couldn't fight uh, found other ways uh, to survive. And like I said, building cities, building communities that were able to repel or avoid uh, slave traders was very, very valuable. And Idrissi uh, Aloma felt like the uh, Damasak had to fall. Like it's, it's almost as if they wanted to strangle the hope. Uh, from the people and that's very consistent with some of the tactics that were known uh, that they used uh, a lot of the tactics would be like hiding ambushing um, maybe you know pretending like they were fighting or like sending a force in to go rile everybody up and force them to retreat have everyone on edge and then wait until they relax so they can go attack them um, the Arabs and the Muslims use very very underhanded tactics um, they would themselves kind of would exaggerate a lot of what they did where the reality was very very different but again if you're telling the stories about how 
weak and helpless these people are makes it easier to subdue them. It also makes it easier to subdue the people that you've already caught. Doesn't that sound familiar? With how the European exaggerates their stories of us, exaggerates our story of our slavery, about how we just were getting beat like brutes. We were just getting beat and waiting for somebody to save us because that's how helpless we were. That's the kind of image that they try to burn, but look at how damaging that image has been for us as a people. That's the same exact thing that Arab Islam was doing. Now, with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and get into the summary portion uh, of this whole episode. Because like I said, I wasn't going to go into great detail. I was condensing quite a bit. And there's some things that I even took out that were even on my bullet points that I took out. Like, you guys don't really need to know about um, Hassan and how they created assassins and the fall of the Fatimids, even though there is some relevance there uh, as far as the fall of the Fatimid dynasty, um, because it is an African established dynasty that had its own uh, Shiite caliph. Uh, ooh, alarm's going off. But yeah, they had their own. Uh, Shiite caliph and they were going against the Sunnis and there's a lot of other negative things happen but it's very convoluted and you have Moors going against other Africans and that's kind of what I said uh, why I said in the beginning about perspective and about culture because culture had a large role to play and how people thought how they functioned how they behaved Although a lot of people, particularly Fatimids in particular, were very, very shocked at their treatment because there were other people outside of them that didn't see them the same way that they saw them, trying to out Muhammad Muhammad. And those people only were Muhammad out of political reasons. Whereas Africans um, converted for spiritual religion. Uh, uh, reasons actually believing in this Allah but <clears throat> the thing that I want us to take from this or I want the family to take from this is number one don't believe a damn word that I say go fact check every damn thing that I said go look at all the scholars I brought up go look at some of the books I brought up um, and to oh yeah to kind of get more into just Arab Islamic slaves or African slaves um, that were sent to West Asia. Um, Ivan Van Sertima's and Renoko Rashidi's uh, African presence in Asia does a good job of that. Uh, Mohammedan dynasties, as translated by Gabriel Pascos, is a good uh, good place to go. Uh, Moors in Spain and Muslims in Spain uh, are also good texts to go for uh, when you want to get some of these details. And then again, everything else, you have to look up the scholars. You have to look up the Ibn Kandul's, the Ibn Battuta's, the Ibn uh, Hakal's, the, the, the Ibn Hayyan's. That'll give you a good, or it'll give you more details of a lot of the things that I talked about. And you may find some things that may be a little bit more disturbing, but the point is, is that it's not going to be 
listed as Arabs versus Blacks. Oh, another good, uh, great works uh, by Al Jafiz, and you can get this from Barnes and Noble. It's a collection of all of his essays. Uh, very, very good work. Um, and he kind of get it kind of gives you the perspective of people. So again, race as we know it today did not exist, but they were certainly biased. Uh, towards African people and Western Asia has always had a beef with uh, African people has long been at war with African people and we've mixed quite a bit but that still hasn't done anything to to rid the uh, the disdain that they have for us and the disdain that still persists the other thing I want us to take away from this is that the ideas, the racist ideas that we've come to understand today as white supremacy didn't start as white supremacy. It started as Arab supremacy and the hatred towards the black tones, the black skins. That was something that was inherited by the European from the Arab. I challenge anybody to show me similar works as I've uh, talked about, that Europeans were writing about black people before a certain point. There's a point where they started doing that sort of writing, yeah. But they are not the authors of that sort of writing. Also, when we talk about the basis of race or the context of race, should we also be understood is that it's through Arab Islam that this concept of race first starts, but it starts with horses. They started applying this sort of racial, these sort of that that sort of thought process towards horses, not towards people. That idea doesn't reach people yet. But that's one of the things that I want us to understand and take away from this, is that it starts a lot of it starts with Arab Islam. When we talk about who crippled Africa, why Africa was so crippled, who put Africa in that position. You have to look at Arab Islam. Before we can get mad at a King Gezo, we have to look at the situation that brought him into, into being. We're talking about the same King Gezo who had to trade Africans, who had to participate to get his own mother back. That's one of his more earlier, uh, I don't want to call it an achievement, but it's one of the things that's credited to him pretty early on. Like this is like slavery was a reality for a lot of African people. And I will, I, I am going to do a section talking about more of the Africans like King Gezo. But it's important to talk about where this starts and it's important for us to see the episodes of what their attitudes were towards us. If we can understand that was their attitude towards us, then we can understand how people who were raised like that could, uh, could have that sort of thought process towards us. The history always erases the mystery. So if you were wondering a lot of whys, I hope I answered a few of them for you. And 
before I leave it off here. Um, that's something that I aim to do with this series. So part one is done. Um, let me know what you think on my social media. So follow me on six zeros, um, Technico. Also, that's the same handle that I use for Instagram and Twitter. So if you guys ever want to uh, get in contact with me, that's always um, some of the best places to start. And if you follow me on that content, well, that also helps me out um, a whole lot. Also, if this episode had any value to you and it gave you good information, please share, share, share. Let other people get a lot of this game. If you've had any thoughts, maybe something that you wanted me to add to it, because um, I'm not beyond doing this again. In fact, I did an overview of slavery. One of the first few episodes I did on the podcast was an overview of slavery. Um, and that was one of the re other reasons I didn't mention this in the beginning why I decided uh, to do this again. Because number one, I felt like that overview of slavery that I did was too short. Um, and I've, it was just something that with new information and new ideas, I wanted to kind of bring that forward. But do it in a more organized manner. So once again, thank you so much uh, for supporting the platform, supporting the podcast. Um, again, follow me on Six Zeros. Love the Six Zeros family. Um, tech out.